Welcome to episode six. Today we are discussing about missions research and why is research important? Rebecca, before we dive in about missions research, what what is something, it could be anything, what's something that you've recently, or maybe something that was just super impactful that you had to research in the past and it just proved to be practically useful? Well, but as I think about that, I'm, I'm researching things all the time because I'm a, I'm a learner. I like to learn. I like to know more about a lot of things. Um, but I, um, as I think about that question with research, I think about even Bible study. I find words that God is really speaking into my life. Like currently a word that um, God is speaking in my life is rest. So I find then I'm researching, you know, what does the scripture say about rest and what does that really mean for us as believers? So, yeah, there's all kinds of things that um, get us to um, really search in and look and try to learn more so we can be better. And um, I'm excited about that, even thinking about the diaspora and how we can better be doing what God has called us to do among the diaspora. Rebecca, thanks for letting me maybe drive a little bit. As 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 you know, I'm my my job title is director of research, so I, I may be a little biased toward the benefit of research. But I think like research always should serve a practical function and help us accomplish something. And if it doesn't, then it's it's pointless. And so when we think of missions research, we want to be able to do research in a way that helps us accomplish the vision. That, that we are pursuing. And I think all believers pursuing this vision of seeing every nation, tongue, and tribe worshiping King Jesus. And whenever I think about that, it's like we know from Revelation that that is what God is going to accomplish. And so if you ever wanted to give your life to something and like be a winner, you know that if you're giving your life to this, you're going to win. Uh, just thinking of a practical thing, right, right now, my dryer is not working. And so last night I'm researching on the internet, why, why is my dryer not working? And so it, it was very practical. And so if you're listening and maybe you've not had a lot of thought about research, uh, you are a researcher, right? Like if you're making decisions on buying a car or what school your kids should go to or why your dryer is not working, you put in work to get information to help inform your decisions and your actions. And that's really what research is, right? So Rebecca, when we think of missions research, I want to throw it back to you because I think I have my answer why missions research is important. But if you had to summarize why missions research is important, where where would you go? What does your mind go whenever you think of the benefit and the practicalities of missions research? Oh, well, I think even before the research piece, I think I've got to start talking to the Lord about this topic, you know, and start asking him questions and praying over, you know, what I'm about to um, look at. But as I even get into prayer, I'm wanting to know more about um, the people that um, I'm called to reach. Um, I don't think that's with any people that we're, you know, feeling called to reach. So, um but you want to learn who they are and what what they're like and what their interests are and how they spend their time and what languages they speak. And you want to just get to know those that God's called you to, you know, be out and sharing Christ among. So um, 
that's kind of my thoughts on research and the importance of research, because I think God's called us to love others and to, and it's through loving them um, that the Holy Spirit is then going to work and um, bring them to, to Christ himself. So um, yeah, so we got to get to know the people that we're trying to reach and share Christ with. Yeah, that's a great, it's a great point that, um, just thinking about that idea of love, it's, it's really hard to love someone you don't know anything about. And when people say they have a love for this people, uh, I think the Lord gives them that, but really for that to be manifested and really to put like shoes on or like, you know, hit, let the rubber meet the road. You have to know who they are, uh, you know, what they're like, like, like what you're saying. So that, that's, that's so good. Um, Whenever I think of missions research, this is kind of the filter and lens that I, I like to put it through just as a, the, the starting point is missions research should exist for, for the purpose of getting more missionaries to the field and helping our current missionaries be more effective. And because we know when those two things are happening that the likelihood of the gospel going forward among an unreached people group is so much higher. If no one goes or we have un- un- ineffective missionaries, then the gospel is not going forward in a way that we would like to see it. And so that's the filter that I look through it at. And I, I found four, four questions that really help me think through what, what are four key things we want to accomplish in missions research. And, and Rebecca, I'm, I'm going to share those. And then I want you uh, to poke holes in this. Like, tell me if I'm wrong or tell me if I'm right. But the first one is, it's very simple and you've already said it, but it is who are the people? And so with the idea of diaspora missions in uh, major metro cities, we have to know who are the people who live in these cities. Because if we don't know who the people are, then clearly we can't know what they're like. We can't know how they can be reached. We don't know what the status of their you know, um, evangelical witnesses. So it, it all begins with who are the people? Would you, would you agree with that? Or tell me, what do you think a benefit would be of defining who are the people, um, in, in the missionary task? Hmm. Well, I mean, even as you say that, I think with research, I tend to be really heavy on that side of really determining who those people are. Um, and the benefit is you, kind of what we've already mentioned is you really begin to build a relationship with the people, even as you begin to study about them, you know, as you learn about their religion or you learn about, again, their language, or you learn about their everyday life and things that they do and how they do things. um, You begin to really develop even a love for them before you even have gotten to know them. So if I am part of a missionary team, an apostolic team, I'm moving into a new city and then I begin to define the people that live there. Uh, another another way of saying this is maybe like, what what is my focus as as a missionary or a missionary team? And so I think the three aspects that as like a team leader, I would define my team's focus is like, who are the people segment? And people segment may be a people group, or it may be a subset of a people group or an affinity group. The second is where is the geographic focus? Because we have to have a level of focus because if our goal as a team is church planting, 
then we have to know where, where and how can these people meet together? And that's really the third question about our focus is what is the extent of desired gospel transformation? And so honestly, some missionaries will go in and this is needed. I'm not saying this in a negative way, but they just want to help them learn English or they just want to sow the gospel or they want to help resettle refugees. But where, where I land is I think all of those things are best accomplished when there's a healthy indigenous church. So what, what, is, what does this look like? Defining who are the people. So I'll, I'll give an example. Um, perhaps that is Badini speaking Kurds. So that is a segment of a people group in Nashville, specifically along the Nolensville Road corridor. And we want to see healthy indigenous reproducing churches. So once I define that, I'm really saying who are the people, but also along with that is I'm, I'm saying, what is success? What is the vision? Yes. Yeah, what's the end vision? Yeah, I love that. I love that as you say that, because it really even, it builds that love within your heart for those people even more thinking about what it could be like and where you are headed. So does that, does that make sense? So what, what, Missions uh, research organizations and networks have done, like uh, Joshua Project, like UPGNorthAmerica.com, like PeopleGroups.org. They have put together people group lists where it says, here are the people groups, here's where they live. And so really the missions research community has taken two aspects of this and they're giving it to the body of Christ and saying, we want to give this to you to help you define what your focus is. Because what I've learned is missionary teams without focus, they have a lot of activity, but they really don't see, and, and again, God can do anything, but they don't really often see a lot of sustainable reproducing fruit. Yeah. You've, I mean, it's almost like you have to create this whole plan or maybe some people might even say a strategy. So whenever you think about, what are they like? I mentioned a couple categories. What what are some some ways that you've practically learned about uh, a people group? What what have you done before, Rebecca? Well, I mean, nowadays we're so blessed because there are so many. There's so much research that has already been done, and you kind of mentioned that as you uh, mentioned Joshua Project, um, as well as other groups that have put together these profiles of who people are. Um, but so sometimes, you know, going to look at that to, again, to learn who the people are. But when I start to think of what are they like, I think of going on and researching online and starting to, you know, read stories about them, read articles about them, kind of learn what's happening among them, um, you know, in the world. Um, but the second piece of that is I feel like it's important to go out and start interviewing some of them, you know, start having a conversation and getting to know who they are, you know, or what they're like and asking them lots of questions. Um, yeah. So that interview process is a big important piece um, because that's, that's how we're really going to know, learn is more of that interaction with them. Um, but do you have some ways that you could help us um, learn how better to interact um, and do the, that interview process. Yeah. Yeah. Just thinking about what you were just saying, really to clarify, you were saying you want to learn about your, your focus people group. And so how do you do that researching online, but then you have to pivot 
and you have to learn from them. And so there, there are some ways that you can learn from the people group that you're focusing on. Uh, one is ethnographic interviews. And that's just, that word just means basically I'm going to talk to someone to learn uh, about their, their, their language, their uh, worldview, their culture. And so typically we want to encourage people to interview three different types of people to get a kind of a, a robust picture of their worldview and probably multiple people in each of these categories. So that should be someone who is a religious leader, someone who is a community leader, and then someone who's just off the street. And so we think of a religious leader. Why a religious leader? Well, it's because if I talk to someone who's off the street and I start asking them religious questions, almost always they tell me, oh, you need to go talk to the priest. You need to go talk to the imam. So let's just start there. Uh, community leaders are going to give you insights to the people in the community. Uh, and then people off the street, you just want a regular person to talk to. And so when you're doing these ethnographic interviews, probably the easiest way to help you think through doing it is, one, it's a conversation. It's it's not an interrogation. Mm-hmm. And so what I like to do is I like to have just different categories of questions that help guide the conversation. So the one category is a grand tour. And so if you think of like going through a grand tour of a city like Athens, you're just getting the high levels. You're asking big picture questions. So an example would be what, what are the religious beliefs of Bangladeshis? That's super broad, right? So that's a grand tour. And then you're listening. You just ask a question and listen. And then the person you're interviewing is probably going to say something you want to clarify. And so the next type of question is a mini tour. So like use the analogy of touring Athens. Now we're going through uh, Mars Hill. We're just touring one part of the city. And I'll say something like, okay, you mentioned that Bangladeshi Muslims have different beliefs than Hindus. What are the religious beliefs of Muslims of Bangladesh? So I've taken something from the grand tour and I've zoomed in on it. And then another mini tour may be whenever you're talking about Muslims of Bangladesh, you may be wanting to ask further about the differences between a couple different Muslim groups in Bangladesh. So grand tour, mini tour, and then I want to ask about experience. So now I'm making it personal to the person I'm talking to. Because whenever I ask grand tour, mini tour, they're going to tell me what what is societally accepted. What's the right answer? But then I want to ask for firsthand experiences. So what that may sound like, again, if we follow this idea of Bangladeshi Muslims, I may say, you mentioned that a good Muslim prays five times a day and attends the mosque on Fridays. When did you personally start participating in the prayers and mosque day? Uh See how I took it from something that they're supposed to do. And now I'm asking it specifically about them. And oftentimes I find this experience question is actually a really great bridge to the gospel because I'm going to find that, Oh, they're not actually doing these things that they are telling me they're supposed to do. Then the final question is what, what I call native language. And it's just where I'm asking for explanation of language specific terms. So again, I may be interviewing a religious leader or talking about religion to a Bangladeshi Muslim. 
And it may be something like, oh, you said your goal is to go on the Hajj one day. What is the Hajj? And so anytime a word is used that you don't understand, you you have to clarify that word. So those are the four questions, grand tour, mini tour, uh, experiential, and then language, native language, explaining, you know, a specific term that you may not have the answer to. So those are the four ways that I really use in interviewing to answer that question, you know, what are they like? And I'm, I'm really trying to dig down and see what is their underlying worldview? What helps them make decisions? And it, I think too, the relationship that you're building as you're doing that with whoever that might be. And I would think this is something that takes a lot of time. I mean, I mean, you could, I guess, have an initial just one conversation with someone and um, get to know them. And I also think my detailed mind, I'd be wanting to take notes while I'm sitting there, you know, trying to write it all down and get it all just right. But um, I know one thing I've learned in this research process is really after I have a conversation with someone to be able to go back and then, you know, that evening or, you know, that afternoon after I've um, met with them to take some notes and um, from the things I've observed and learned from those four pieces, the grand tour, the mini tour, the experience, and even the native language um, piece. Um, but, you know, but as we talk about what are they like, we've talked about, um, you know, learning from online publications. We've talked about a little bit about observing and interviewing people, but then we go into even more of that, I guess, kind of what I was saying, that personal aspect of really learning with them, you know, doing life with them. I think about in Bangladesh, um, the importance of just hanging out with the women, you know, in the kitchen as they're cooking and learning you know, and asking questions, even in that kind of aspect, and what that brings um, to your research piece is that learning and focus on those people. Yeah, the the learning the learning with is really multifaceted because uh, another way that you can research a people group is through being a participant observer. So whatever it is they're doing, you just participate. And you observe, just like it sounds, participant observer. So that could be a religious festival. That could be a, uh, you know, where Neros is a Central Asian uh, celebration that a lot of people celebrate, just going to a Neros gathering and participating, but observing. And then what that does is it generates more questions in your mind. Or like you mentioned, watching them cook, cooking with them, you're going to see things that are different than what you do and it's going to generate questions. And then you also mentioned about taking notes. Note taking is so important because I, I don't know if you're like me, I, I can't remember everything. Right. And I think the Lord only gave us so much capacity to remember, but then now we have these gifts of if I can just remember where I keep stuff, I really have access to a lot. But what ends up happening is you're going to find questions you wish you would have asked in the interview as you're note taking. And then you can write that down for future interactions. Oh, I want to clarify this or I want to clarify that. The other aspect of learning with is as people from this uh, people group come to faith in Christ, it's, it's the role of the missionary to learn with them. What does it look like to be an Afghan believer in Christ from a Muslim background because we can't prescribe that. We have to go through the process with them 
being informed by scripture because what we don't want to do and what missionaries and centuries past, I think with good intentions did is they, they just took our model of Christianity and they implanted it into another worldview, into another culture. But I think really what honors the Lord is culture is, is not bad. The gospel is for every culture and letting that culture decide themselves from scripture. What does worship look like? What does taking communion look like? What does baptism look like? And it may not look the way that we're used to doing it, but is it biblically faithful? That's also part of the process of learning with. Which, I mean, it reminds me, one of the things of, you know, kind of answering these first two questions of who who are they and what are they like is I like to go to their place of worship if I can. I like to go in and see and, you know, experience and learn about um, kind of those ways they worship, um, whatever religion or God they're worshiping. Um, and so it helps me to begin to think of, you know, what would church even look like for them, you know, as they begin to come to know to Christ, um, what aspects of this, for example, Muslims, most Muslims um, communities um, in their worship in a mosque, they're going to have a separate place for men and a separate place for women, whether it be in the same room and they're separated or whether it be in a separate room <laughs> in a building that they're separated. And um, so would that be something that they might, that might be a way that they choose to, you know, sit together maybe separately um, or even with music and the importance of music, um, with you know them coming to know Christ and beginning to develop their own songs and things like that. What how will music look different? Um, there's just so many aspects of that. But it reminded me of just going into their places of worship and beginning to learn, which is very important with these two first questions. I think as we get to know the people. Yeah, I think that's a great great pivot to the third question, which is. How can they be reached? And really what we're after is best practices. And if a people group is unreached, we may not know the best practices. So then understanding what they're like is just the research to inform us on what to try. And so that that may be using a gospel presentation that's never been used before. So I, I think of... Uh, one, one of the great books that, that talks about this idea is Peace Child, where it is an unreached people group in Papua New Guinea and missionary working among them for, for many years. It's been a while since I read it, so I don't remember all the details. But ultimately, through being part of their community and learning what they're like and learning about something in their culture called a peace child, that peace can only be through this peace child that these two tr warring tribes could live at peace. And then the missionary says, oh, this is how we can communicate the gospel. God sent his peace child. And then the people in the village start coming to faith. And so it was just this pivot and how it was presented. But the only way the missionary knew to do that is he was learning about them, learning from them, learning with them. And it was through a lot of difficulty that people are dying that he learns this, but that was... That was the, the, the key for this people group to receiving the gospel was what, what, what he calls the redemptive analogy. And so oftentimes when a 
people group is unreached, there's little to no believers, we might have to do the research just to find what, what is the redemptive analogy? What is good news to these people? But then I know too, though, you can go into a particular people group and maybe they're not best practices that you already know. Um, you're having to kind of still, you, you're having to kind of do a lot of trial and error to figure out what those best practices are too. Um, do you have any pointers on how best to do that, but it, Bud, when you're trying to kind of navigate a new um, people that maybe not much has been going on among? Yeah, so I think there's a couple processes. So one, I, I want to know what's been tried in the past, um, because if it's been tried in the past, maybe it was good, maybe it was bad, but it was it didn't necessarily have the effect that it wanted. I don't want to repeat that, but it may be I look at what they did. And since I've learned about the people, maybe there's just some slight modifications I can make. So like one, one example, and I think if you're, you're listening, you'll, you'll understand this perhaps. So a gospel tool that's been trained uh, really extensively across the world, uh, millions of people, is the three circles. And the three circles connects really, really well with really a Western audience. But... I can also use the three circles to share with a Hindu from an Eastern uh, worldview by just changing and tweaking some things, right? I'm using words that connect with them. So like if I say sin, most Hindus are going to have no idea what that means. But if I use the word pop, that's the that's a word that they use that closely resembles our view of sin. And then I understand too, salvation for them is the breaking of samsara, which is, you know, the reincarnation cycle. It's like, does, does Jesus give us freedom from that? Well, I don't have to agree that that's right to communicate in a way of saying, well, Jesus in Christ, we are born again and we will never die again. Or, or with Muslims, I can use different terms about how I share the gospel of giving pictures of uh, Korban or Adha, about sacrifice and saying, oh, well, Jesus was the final sacrifice. So I can take something that's already existing and tweak it. Another option is whatever has been used is just not really that good. And I have to innovate. And when I innovate, this is one thing that we, we do in uh, strategy coordinator training when we're training up people to take ownership or focus of a specific people group is we talk about launching a thousand ships. When you have no idea, it's like, how can I get all of the gospel going out in all kinds of different ways. And then I'm tracking, again, part of research, what is getting a response? And I'm doing it in different areas, maybe in a country or a city. So that way there's not a lot of overlap. And then I start to see, oh, this is the way that people are responding. And again, it's not all about our method. You know, God is sovereign in this process, but we just see in history that God has responded uh more in some methods than others. And so not discounting or trying to wrestle between these two ideas, but really just saying, what is God blessing right now? And that's what we want to implement until he's not. And then we have to, again, innovate, launch a thousand ships. And sometimes too, I'll, I'll, I'll throw it back to you, Rebecca, because I, I think you probably have a little bit of knowledge of, of this idea, is sometimes the Bible has been translated and it's used language that doesn't connect with a specific people group that's sharing a language. So like an example would be if uh, just 
a different example, talking about Native Americans, there is a new Bible translation, I don't know how new, a couple years old, called the First Nations Translation. And it's using language that applies to their culture, but it's written in English. And so if I read that, and that was my first exposure to the gospel, I would almost feel like I have to become a Native American before I can become a believer. And that sounds weird, but in other countries, like that same that same idea has applied. Do you, do you, do you have any insight on that, Rebecca? Well, when we went over to Bangladesh, um, of course, our first thing was to begin to learn culture um, as well as language. And um, so we began to learn um, the language of Bangla or Bengali. And, um, but as we began to learn language, our focus group in um, Bangladesh that we're really focusing on were the Muslims within Bangladesh. And their terms are different from the Hindus and the Christians. The Hindus and the Christians have terms in their language that they use even for not just religious words, but um, the kitchen or water. They have different words, like family terms that they would use depending on their religion. So we had to really begin to share the gospel in such a way, not using just the regular, what you would consider Bengali, we had to focus in on what were the lang- what's the language the Muslims are using um, to focus in on Bengali. And then even a kind of a side po- point for that is then there was an, uh, um, the people that we were reaching in Bangladesh um, were actually Chittagonian Muslims. So their heart language was not even um, Bengali. It was more of a Chittagonian language that wasn't even written. It hadn't been written. It was just um, voiced. So that that whole language piece and um, the right terminology, the right religious words is just a very important part. And But we wouldn't know that unless you went in and began to really research it and learn that. And But then we would see a Muslim from Bangladesh um, that you know, spoke, I'll go back to more of that Muslim versus Hindu terminology that you would see if you shared Christ with them using those Muslim terms that they knew, they were more likely to listen to what you had to say um, and not just stand off and not want to hear what you had to say than going in um, and sharing with them more of those Christian Hindu terms um, that are used. So yeah, but that's an important part is that terminology piece as well. So we think of diaspora and language. One thing that I have observed um, a lot of people that are attempting to work among diaspora people is they're not learning language. Rebecca, you have learned a language. How limited are you in understanding a people's culture if you don't learn their language? (laughs) Well, I mean, my first piece, even thinking about that, when you begin to learn the language, um, you can really get down and have, even even when you begin to learn a language, it just the simplest of terms, um, not getting deep and heavy into the language and knowing it fluently, you develop a relationship with someone just by knowing, being able to greet them in the right way. So even that, but then when you just continue to learn the language and continue to research and study the language, um, 
you begin to have more of those intimate conversations and ask more of those difficult questions. And, um, and you're being, I love the idioms. No. Yeah. It's, there's certain things that we say. I mean, I think about in English, we say certain things. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, my, my wife always says that she's going to run to the store, but she's not actually running. We, she's going to drive. So that, like, that's an idiom, right? Is that what you're talking about? That is what I'm talking about. So that even through learning these idioms, you find out things about the people and stories about the people, um, and you're able to better communicate with them. So there's just this intimate level um, when you start to learn language, and it really takes you even farther into the research part. Um, with your language learning um, that I love. I don't know if that answered your question per se, but um, I, I think language learning is such an important part of the whole research process and being able to share Christ effectively and, and the most with someone is through, you know, knowing some even of their language as well as continuing to learn and grow in what their language is. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up this section with, with the best practice that we have observed anecdotally, but also, too, there was a fruitful practices research done a few years ago about people working specifically among Muslims in the diaspora, and it the data clearly pointed to learning language was one of the most key um, indicators of effectiveness of ministry. And so I believe that we can say best practice is learning language because one, you get to connect, you get to communicate at a heart level, but two, the whole idea of researching about a people, their culture, their worldview, like we've been saying, without learning language, you're limited. Even if the person's English is proficient, we're not going to understand how to communicate the good news to them. And then the other part, how can they be reached? Isn't just about sharing the gospel. It's also about discipling and multiplying and if they're not able, even if I connect with an English speaker, if they're not able to communicate gospel truths in their language with others, then we're, we're setting we're setting this people up for a slow, stagnant uh, movement of God through it. And again, I don't want to limit what God can do. It's just what we've seen that the gospel multiplies most rapidly when it, it's in the skin of the people. And so... That is one of the best practices that we could implore you to do is, hey, highly consider if you're giving your life to, to working among a diaspora people, to learning their language. And that, that kind of pivots to the last question is, how are we doing? And this is really about tracking engagement and progress. So if I can, I'll, I'll just kind of wrap, wrap it up with this, Rebecca, if I can, just a big, big picture. The first question is, who are the people? That manifests itself in people group list. We know the status of evangelical engagement. We know if there's believers, if there's churches. We have all of this data. And then a missionary team says, we want to reach Kurds in Nashville. And then they start to learn language. They're learning uh, about the people. They're learning from the people. They're learning with the people. And not like sequentially at the same time they're learning how can they be reached. They're sharing the gospel. They're trying things. They're doing all of these things. They're finding out what resources exist, what resources need to be developed. 
they're collaborating, they're doing all of the work, they're learning, this is happening simultaneously, but then also we have to track how are we doing? Because let's say this missionary team among Kurds in Nashville sees a breakthrough and they, they are seeing reproducing churches. That data then needs to feed back into that people group list because their status needs to change. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, right now, it's a high priority to see engagement among Kurds in Nashville because there's, there is some, but there needs to be more. But as they start to see breakthrough, then that has to loop back and say, okay, from a priority perspective, God is already moving. There's local indigenous leaders. There's less need for outside workers. So then that can inform missionary teams, uh, missionary uh, associations, networks, organizations to say, well, maybe it's not best to put a team among Kurds in Nashville. Maybe we should put a team among Somali Bantu in Columbus because there's no known believers or, or whatever it may be. But I think we are falling short as believers, as apostolic missionary teams, as organizations and networks if we're not tracking progress, because we're going to see where significant gaps are, we're going to be able to celebrate what God is doing. So if we see a breakthrough among Kurds in Nashville, as the body of Christ, we can celebrate that. It's not just about tracking numbers. It's also about stories. We can tell the stories, but then also we can track to determine effectiveness. And then that leads to once we see effectiveness among a people group, it can lead to coaching other teams in other parts of the world. Or maybe we need to be coached by those in Iraq that's working with Kurds. And then lastly, we can track church health. A lot of people give a lot of pushback about this indigenous multiplying church idea. But it's what we see in the book of Acts because they are afraid of churches not being healthy. I don't think we have to go in that ditch. Part of tracking is tracking church and disciple health as well as generational growth because unhealthy churches that are multiplying are still unhealthy. We want to see healthy indigenous churches multiplying, but that's also part of missions research. And so when you put it all together, it's a nice little package. Who are the people? What are they like? How can they be reached? How are we doing? It gets me excited. It gets I get a little overwhelmed because we've talked about so much, but I love that we have this nice little package that we can just really start with. And the important thing is for us just to get out there and get started and um, be learning and networking and um, always looking for ways to, you know, be reaching better that particular people group and also continuing to encourage them. That's what I liked about that fourth question of how we're doing is really, um, I guess, being able to encourage others to be out sharing through the stories and through what's working um, and not looking at it as much on that statistics or numbers or, you know, really patting ourselves on the back, but um, being able to encourage other people saying, you know, this has been working. You might, you might want to try it out um, and I'm giving people new ideas and new thoughts for trying and learning because we're always learning about who God is. Yeah, that's great. Let me close, let me close with this thought. Uh, Oftentimes researchers are so disconnected from the work. And so if you're a researcher, you're a team leader, you're a strategist, a strategy without someone's first name isn't a strategy. 
the, the mission of God, the purposes of God are, are corporate for people groups, but they're also for individuals. And if we're not connecting at an individual level, if we're got, not getting people's first names in the, in the process of this, uh, we've, we've separated ourselves too far from, from the work that God has ultimately called us to. And that's, that's to be uh, salt and light to a world that is lost and dying. And in the case of diaspora unreached people groups who have never, uh, potentially never had the opportunity to hear the name of Jesus. This season is sponsored by UPG North America. Go to upgnorthamerica.com for more information.